So now, because of the mobile phone supply chain, you can make a useful satellite uh, the size of a loaf of bread, right? And you couldn't before. The electronics are smaller, the, you know, you can have great sensors and cameras and so on. And what's interesting is this satellite, the, you know, the bomb is about $100,000 and to launch them is about two or $300,000. So an entrepreneur that's skilled, you know, out of, out of college, you know, by raising about a couple of million dollars, you can have a demo, demonstration satellite, right? A single one. Welcome, everybody. I'm Mark Peter Davis, Managing Partner of Interplay Ventures. Today, we're having a conversation with Max Hote, the CEO of Launcher. Launcher is a company that is creating rockets to deliver satellites into space. I found the conversation to be absolutely fascinating. Max takes us through his journey to America as an entrepreneur. He explains how the space industry actually operates and introduces us to the concept of minimum viable process. I hope you enjoy the chat. This episode is brought to you by Spark Digital. Spark Digital is a full service provider of technology consulting, software design, and development services. They work with companies in the communications, media, and technology industries. If you're interested in learning more, visit sparkdigital.com. Max, thanks for being on. Welcome. Mark, thanks for, thanks for having me. All right, so let's get started. Uh, would you mind giving us an overview of your entrepreneurial journey? Maybe start from the beginning, some context on who you are and what you've done. Yeah, great. Um, so I'm originally from uh, Belgium, now a uh, thankful naturalized uh, citizen. And uh, when I... Um, when I finished high school, I wanted to be a TV director. So I ended up doing an internship in London uh, in 95 uh, to learn to be a live TV director. And um, as I started that internship, I realized it was really, really tough to get a job in television. It was a TV company called uh, IMG. Um, but I realized that this thing called the internet was kind of uh, starting and uh, as a kid, I had done BBS and wrote my own BBS and kind of had been into computers and, um, you know, kind of the online version pre-internet uh, there. And uh, I realized that I should really focus on uh, uh, the internet. So I started my career building um, a website and content management system for uh, large sport federations like uh, Wimbledon, Manchester United, uh, the European Tour of Golf, the U.S. Tennis Association, uh, and within that company, we build, you know, live scoring, website, publishing system. And um, by the time I was 20, I had 100 people uh, working for me, you know, building high-scale uh, websites. Um, and then through that, I started to specialize in, in video. So, you know, we were already doing uh, audio streaming, you know, at that time. And then video streaming as bandwidth started to increase. Um, and I ended up building a lot of video product, which uh, we sold to Verizon in uh, 2000 and. Uh, four or five, and um, you sold the product, or you, you sounds like you started this agency. Did you sell the whole agency? Yeah, or that, just a I was part of a, a company called IMG. You can check them, uh, the, yeah. uh, IMG.com. They do sport management and TV and so on and technology. Um, but uh, I'd created like a division in the product, and uh, they bought the asset, the product, uh, which was a content management product. Okay. And with that came the opportunity to uh, immigrate to the U.S. So I was already, you know, from Belgium, ten years in England. And then this opportunity was there, super excited about it. Um, you know, always dreamed to move to the U.S., whether to the West Coast or East Coast, um, and got the chance. So 2005, here I come, uh, arrive in New York, uh, run sales for Verizon, and uh, 
um, you know, do an earn out for two years. You know, it's obviously, as you'd expect, uh, pretty corporate, but still pretty interesting. Um, and then at the right time, I decided to leave and start my first, you know, real company, which was a uh, live stream. It actually started being called Mogulus. Um, and the I remember. Vision, I first met you when it was still Mogulus. In, the, in this day. And the, the vision, which is very relevant today, uh, was a, a TV studio in the cloud um, so that anyone could uh, mix multiple camera and do graphics and live stream on the internet without knowing anything technical. So... Um, Obviously, today, that's a very relevant proposition. Um, as we evolve, we focused on um, a rebranding, you know, one of the best uh, um, business decisions, I guess, uh, at the time. Uh, we bought Livestream.com, same product, rebranded it at Livestream. And then we focused on a SaaS product to enable, um, you know, creators and, and organizations around the world, from churches to schools to businesses, newspapers, and so on, that wanted to do live streaming. But you know, knew nothing about how to build a video player and buy $20,000 encoders and so on. So with, with live stream, they could obviously easily start. And we had a very scalable, obviously, video player and CDN um, and very affordable. So the business became, um, you know, a SaaS business for uh, white label um, uh, streaming. Um, and, uh, you know, we grew it to, uh, to over $60 million in revenue. And in 2017, uh, we uh, sold it uh, to IAC Vimeo. So that's at the time, you know, you asked the adventure. Mm -hmm. um, <clears throat> at that time, I had already set my eyes, you know, after between 95 to, what is it, 2017. That's a pretty long time to do internet and video. Uh, and you start to think, uh, you know, I'm 43, about what you want to do for the second part of your career and, and where you want to go. Um, and so for me, aerospace and, uh, you know, I'm, I'm, I have huge passion in hardware. Actually, the camera we, we use now is, a, is another business around called uh, Mevo, Mevo.com, uh, live streaming cameras that I got back from uh, Vimeo a year and a half ago. Uh, but my, my true passion and, and long-term adventure is to contribute to um, space exploration, right? In any way, obviously, you have to have some commercial service. So the first service we're building is... Uh, delivering small satellites to orbit, and we can talk about how challenging and, and unique and hard it is. Um, but what we talk about me personally, it's it's more about, okay, my next phase, I want to, you know, contribute to space exploration. I think that's the most important thing that uh, we can be doing, um, you know, in 10,000 years. If we are still around, we will be multiplanetary, uh, I believe, and the, and the moon landing um, and probably Sputnik will be the most important event uh, of, of at least this century and last century and, and beyond. You know, everything else is noise uh, at that point. So, so that's my, my passion and my interest. Um, and I started Launcher. So as soon as we sold to Vimeo as part of the deal, I started focus full-time on, on Launcher. Um, and uh, that's been, uh, yeah, since the end of 2017. And uh, here we are. And the, Vimeo, the Mevo side is, uh, was an opportunity, Vimeo, um, wanted to uh, kind of spin it out, divest it. It's an incredible team, incredible product. Um, so I acquired it back. Um, but the end goal is uh, is uh, funding for Launcher, you know, even though obviously it's an incredible uh, product that I love. So you love film, tech, and space. Let's unpack that a little bit. Mm -hmm. What was it about the film side that got you captured initially? Because you, you've moved away from that. What is that, and does that bleed into anything that's shaped your perspective and what you're doing now? It's interesting. The uh, well, there's actually a movie that 
Right, computers, not film, and rockets. Uh, have you seen war games and modems? Yeah, sure. <laughs> kind of, We're both old. Sometimes I look, I, I look back at the movie and I'm like, did I just define everything about my life? That's kind of <laughs> silly. Um, it's obviously not serious. Um, but um, but for the videos piece, um, you know, I, I remember I had the chance to be a, a friend of mine at high school. His dad ran the, the only private TV station in uh in Belgium, or the only French-speaking, you know, we only 10, 10 million people there, and the French-speaking is five million, so there's not many TV stations for five million. But I had the chance to be in the in the newsroom. You know, in, in Europe, everybody's watching the news every day, or at least did at the time. Um, and I was in the newsroom and seeing the live director that was calling the shots, right, and cutting and doing the graphics and the live editing. And somehow I kind of locked on that, like, oh, I want to do that. Um, you know, it's one of these things, right? And the... So it wasn't it wasn't from a film point of view. It was always from a live, and you know, I think it's so powerful, right? The idea that this person is is deciding what millions of people are are watching, or however many were watching. Mm-hmm. Um, I think it's a, it's an interesting job, right? And and it's high skilled and it's tech. Um, so that's how it started. So I ended up democratizing that job, right? At the end, uh, building video switchers and cameras and platform that allows anyone to do that. Um, but, you know, somehow in a roundabout way, I guess. And how did you get into tech? Was that something through school or what What, what gave you the technical chops to to bridge? That's the link back to war games. I think I, think I got a Commodore 64 um, or I know like at seven or something like that. And I wasn't interested in gaming so much at the time. I was doing, you know, basic programming and uh, like, for example, replicating the cash register of the local store, you know, like printing, uh, you know, choosing things in your shopping cart and so on. So that's seven, eight-year-old, maybe eight. Um, and then uh, I was lucky, I, I, even at that time, I saw the movie War Game. I'm like, I want a modem. And I was in the computer store at that age, and they had a 300 bits per second modem. Um, I got that, and that just started um, my interest already calling BBS and so on. Um, and, uh, then for, you know, one of my, uh, uh, like birthday or something like that, I got enough, um, presents for many people so I could buy my first computer, uh, which was very expensive. It's probably in that time's dollar, it was like a thousand five hundred bucks to buy a computer. So for mm-hmm. a nine, 10 year old, so I was very lucky. My, my parents, you know, bought me a computer and I was a, you know, a DOS, a, you know, PC XD computer. And then I started programming and doing different language. And then ultimately, I built my own BBS um, software and I ran it so people would call and exchange software. And I would call the U.S. to download like antivirus software to distribute them locally in Belgium. And then uh, my parents would get these crazy bills. Um, it was kind of an interesting time. But So you were a child hacker? Yeah, well, not hacker. I, right. I might have tried to hack a few times, but I don't think I was a... a a hacking prodigy, but uh, yeah, I love computing, but actually at the time I thought it was a bit, um, I don't know, like a bit too geeky for me or whatever. Um, uh, and, uh, you know, that was a different, so I wasn't kind of set on doing computer science and, and with hindsight, I probably should have, that was, you know, no one really gave me that advice. Um, so I was set on doing uh, this video thing because I thought it was really great and interesting. And then kind of the computer thing kind of got back very quickly, you know, by the time I was 18. Uh, when I got my first, you know, unpaid internship job that I ended up staying for 10 years at, at this place in London. That was IMG? Mm-hmm. Right. Okay. And so did you go to IMG after college or how did you no, end no, up? No college, zero. So I went there, you know, basically this 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 friend that uh, 
And I really hope my kids go to college. So I think it's pretty risky what I did. Um, but there you go, I did it. Um, but um, this friend that had a, um, a, his dad at a TV station uh, basically got me an internship at, at IMG in London. And it was supposed to be a one-year internship as a favor. Um, and then, you know, I was working in the library putting videotapes in, you know, in, in a warehouse um, at the time TV station, you know, relied a lot on on uh, on beta videotapes to be organized and create content. Um, so I was there and then quickly they realized I had internet skills and computer skills. And then, you know, I basically, the, the son of the founder, Todd McCormack, kind of, he was based in the US, found me and then suddenly it's like, oh, okay, develop this website and hey, why don't you hire two people? And, you know, like two years forward and we had two, you know, 100, 100 engineers working for me and, uh, you know, doing all of that stuff. So um, it was just kind of organic. And so for two years, I think I was unpaid. Um, and it was always like I was call, called my dad and said, okay, I'm going to go back to school. At that time, I was thinking about film school, so uh, that I'm glad I didn't do. Um, but um, it's like, you sure you want me to go back to Belgium? You know, like there's a real opportunity here, this thing, the internet, it's kind of might not be around. Um, the opponent might not be around if I go away for three years and come back. Right. Um, and so I just kept going, and I got a job, and I got a salary, and a bigger one, and, you know, just... Year by year, you know, iterating. It sounds like you seize the moment. Scaling up to manage a hundred people is probably more useful than a college degree for most. Yeah, I don't feel. I don't know how good I was at it. <laughs> Maybe I should interview <laughs> some people at the time. Uh, but we did it, and the products were good, and the you know the output was good. Um, but yeah, that's an incredible uh, you know opportunity to to learn Absolutely. Um, and to create value. You know, we were you know, I mean. Um, yeah, doing a lot of uh, stuff with a lot of eyeballs at the time, and it was pretty hard to scale, right? We would do, you know, a Man United website or even Wimbledon, we would do uh, this, this Java applet with real-time scores. That was the first time, so you could go, you know, on wimbledon.com and see the, the scores. And, uh, you know, even at the time, the internet was obviously nowhere near as big, but the, the technology also for servers was and the bandwidth uh, w was not there. Uh, we would host in our office with like a 10 megabits line. I mean, it was just ridiculous. Uh, so ch scaling this stuff to for this kind of world-class sport brand audience um, was always a uh, you know learning with the fire hose. You know we were, we were doing some interesting mm -hmm. stuff. So. Now, why did you want to come to the U.S.? What was the you know for a lot of the people who are going to hear this, I would assume they're going to be all over the world and they'll have different perspectives. Growing up in Belgium, what was the draw of the U.S. at that point for you? I mean, it's always been about work opportunity and entrepreneurship opportunity. So uh, England was, you know, I guess there were more opportunity for me to do what I did in England than in Belgium. So that's that's kind of how I ended up there and, and stayed there. And, and I love England and, and English people. Um, but there is a certain, you know, if you look at what happened in the pre-dot-com boom, you know, for those who were not around or whatever, like pre-2000 internet boom and then um, later, um, you know, there's... Clearly, there was a lot of more things happening, uh, even here in New York and, and on the West Coast, from, you know, if you look at it from, from the UK side. Um, so for me, it was very clear. My goal was always creating a company and getting investors. Um, it, it just was really impossible in New York. In, um, like, I couldn't even see how I would get investors in, uh, in London. In, you know, mm -hmm. I'm talking about early 2000s. Uh, without, you know, a, a background and having proven that I can run a company myself. Um, and, uh, <clears throat> you know, in New York, obviously, there was a lot more uh, lot more opportunities. And I, I did start it with the cash proceed I made from this transaction. So even though it was on a, the IMG to Verizon um, 
even though it wasn't my own company, it was an exit and I had, uh, you know, shadow equity. Mm-hmm. Um, so it, it did allow me, you know, enough capital to, uh, to start, you know, on my own uh, without any seed funding, uh, Mogulus, and then we kind of started from there. So, um, yeah, opportunity, um, you know, entrepreneurship opportunity. It's, it's clear and, you know, uh, and, you know I, and by the way, what was interesting is I had a lot of Belgian investors and I still do and a lot of European investors in, in my New York-based uh, ventures. Um, and, you know, so there are a lot of relationship and capital you can leverage for entrepreneurship, but I actually don't believe they would have invested if I was in Belgium. So That's fascinating. And it feel, I feel like it's changed a lot. London, Paris, Berlin are all increasingly startup hubs. Have you had any draw, inclination, or desire to relocate back at this point? I mean, many of my friends throughout the year in New York were, you know, temporary expat. I've always been an immigrant. You know, even when I was in London, I, you know, I wanted to stay there and be there uh, from day one. And I just moved to the U.S., um, you know, as a, as a later decision. And in the U.S., I've always been like, hey, I'm, I'm an immigrant. So, you know, my, my wife, Rachel, is, is American. My kids are American. Um, you know, I might move around one day around the U.S. Or, uh, but yeah, I'm I'm a really proud, naturalized, you know, American passport holder. Um, and it turns out that it's also very important for what I'm doing now with uh, defense and aerospace. Uh, but it's it's in my heart um, what I want to do. Um, you know. Now you mentioned your wife Rachel. I, I'm if I'm correct, you're half of a power couple. <laughs> you want to give me? Uh, you mind just give everyone a, a little overview of what your wife does? The uh, yeah, Rachel. Um, uh, so we've been married since uh, 2012, um, and then at the time she was a chief digital officer under uh, Mike Bloomberg, and then she uh, for for New York City, then uh, for New York State, uh, under Governor Cuomo for a few years, uh, did an incubator, and now she runs uh, she runs a an incubator and a kind of a um, accelerator uh, for technology within the MTA as part of the partnership for New York. So she, you know, we both work. She's definitely, uh, yeah, very accomplished. And it's, it's amazing to, to have a partner uh, to not only build a family, but I'd also, you know, understand uh, what uh, technology is and is innovative, innovating and, and uh, you know, fully engaged in the communities. And at this point, you both interface with the government at some level too, which is an interesting parallel. Yep. So, okay, so you came out of the Verizon role. You had made some money. Mm-hmm. How did that inform, enable you to think about your next move when you went to do Mogulus live stream? So it, it was a very simple process. It's, um, it was, uh, okay, so uh, I need to start a startup. Uh, and uh, I kind of brainstormed a few ideas. Um, they were all centered around video. You know, one was a service to help video podcasts create graphics on top of the, you know, on top of, you know, easily add value and graphics and treatment uh, on not recorded video, right, um, on, on recorded video. Um, and YouTube already was, you know, I'd been bought by Google and all of this was already going on, right, in 2007, 2008, when, when I started Livestream or Mogulus. Um, and then, you know, another one was uh, democratizing live. I'd done a lot of live video. At the time, if you wanted to do any live video, you had to, um, you know, buy an encoder, five, ten thousand dollars $10,000. You had to go to a content distribution network, companies like Akamai that, you know, no one had heard of other than uh, technology people. You had to go to a salesperson and negotiate um, 
you know, a deal for maybe 50 grand a year and, and more. And then you had to build a video player, which when we started was Flash. But then when the iPhone came out, you had to, you know, build something else and, and you had to build an entire platform. And that's how, you know, newspapers and media companies and everybody would do live. And if you wanted to do live as a turnkey service, as we know, on live stream, YouTube, you know, Twitch, where, wherever, that was not available. And so it's a pretty good idea that uh, one should do that, right? Plug a camera in a computer, press a go live button and have a player that can have, you know, one one person to uh, you know a million person watching, um, and what was interesting, you can clearly tell it was in in the air is that the the week or the month we launched, at the time our competitor Justin TV and UStream, that we were kind of the three, uh, all came out the same week or month. Um, wow! So you can clearly tell that you know we we didn't really you know what we didn't really create these like somehow the stack of things that they always before. come in threes oh they do I didn't, yeah I always as, as the vc had on <laughs> whenever you're seeing a deal you know there's two more out there you just haven't seen them so you have to be aware of that that's interesting but uh yeah it was about well, we're pretty bummed we're like ah but it's i guess validation you know just in tv it wasn't so successful in terms of the SaaS and the growth but uh became twitch so became uh the the big winner that you know that was sold through to amazon um, uh, Ustream uh, sold to IBM, and then we sold later to to Vimeo. But it was a um, it was a you know an amazing time of the early days of what now everybody takes for granted. But it was fascinating. You know, we would go you know obviously trying to raise capital from strategic or VC, and uh, the question we'd get all the time is like you know now with video on demand on YouTube and on Netflix and what well, there was no Netflix, but whatever the equivalent. People would be like, but who needs live? Like, if you can, and it was like a real struggle to explain that there was a lot of value in live mm. uh, for all the reasons we know now. It's not the same thing as recorded content; just another category. Um, and uh, but now, obviously, it's you know, I don't think we'll have. If I was starting a live video company, we would be having these discussions. So uh, it's really great to see how normal it is now, and uh, you know how part of the world it is. The expectation that anyone can live stream. What was the turning point when you knew it was going to work? I think the you know the 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 investor journey, the, you know the capital kind of P and L journey was you know I put a few hundred thousand dollar, then we we got a few private investors, some from Europe, you know, kind of got another two million in, um, and uh, you know we I was not having good traction with uh, you know your standard VCs at the time. Um, and uh, we did a deal with Gannett, actually, the newspaper company, um, which invested $10 million. Um, so that was a good day, right, to, to scale. Um, but with that, the service was getting more and more popular. We actually were not using CDN. We were one of the first customers on Amazon Web Services. Uh, but the bill became about $500,000 a month. Wow. Um, so $10 million is not much. Um, and so we were, we were kind of, you know, depleting cash. We didn't have any monetization. We couldn't raise any more money. Um, and that really wasn't looking good. And then we started the premium SaaS service, right? So if you wanted to remove ads and you wanted more storage, more video quality, uh, we started Livestream Pro or premium, um, $3.99 a month, something like that. And just as soon as we launched it, you know, revenue came in and, and then we quickly got to a, a break-even point, um, you know, within a year. Um, so that, that was the point, you know, enabling the SaaS service and realizing that um, that uh, you know we could get to a point where we're not uh, we're not dependent on the next funding, we will have options for for the future. Do you think you could have launched with a SaaS service versus waiting? 
Yeah, absolutely. Um, I think um, I think we, you know, the, you know, I think you have to go all in one way, trying to create, you know, a Twitch or you know, a, a competitor to YouTube Live, or you obviously should just go premium um, right out of the gate. I think, as you know, the expectation to pay for services is uh, increasing all the time. And personally, I prefer to just pay directly and kick the tires with a trial. Uh, you know, when I'm purchasing services. Um, and rather than kind of services that are mixed, premium and free, and you know, it's like it's like you're not clear where you are. So, I think that that user or customer behavior is is ever increasing now. Um, so yeah, it should have probably been a, a premium white label uh, player, uh, focus on on quality and or ease of use and so on. Uh, maybe a bit more affordable. You know, you can see now we we know obviously Vimeo very well has built a very big, uh, just public information about their revenue, but a very big SaaS video business with, uh, um, you know, $7 a month for, you know, $50 a month for something like that. So so maybe lower price and directly premium, I, I think so. Kind of an interesting narrative. You, Justin TV, launched, had interesting technology, maybe didn't have product market fit, mm-hmm. and both found different market segments where it clicked. Oh, it was really interesting. And... and that was a debate, you know, the gaming. So the the history was. Um, so firstly, as we as we've done live streaming, I mean, there are billion dollar subsets of ID within live streaming everywhere, and there's still many that are not known. A billion dollar, you know, valuation, whatever you want to call it, right? And um, there's so many, right? And and they, it was always clear. So like, uh, I probably think you could do a, you know, a. a you know, house of worship related service and, and get to a unicorn. That was kind of a very big category. Uh, and the gamers, you know, we had Mojang streaming. We were actually, there was no Twitch, there was no gaming service. And uh, we actually had built a, an encoder called Procaster for gamers. And we were by far between Justin TV, you stream and us. We were the, mo- the most popular um, gaming category service in the early days, right? Right. Uh, and, and it was, wow, suddenly, you know, Mojang comes and plays Minecraft and we have, you know, 100,000 people on the network. Um, and we had many times the debate, you know, should we focus on, on a vertical and should we focus on gaming? Um, and you got to, you know, give it to the Justin TV uh, people, you know, the team. They saw it. They saw what we saw. We all had the opportunity. Uh, they seized it. Um, they gave up everything else. Now, they didn't have to give up anything. We had thirty million dollar a year revenue to give up, uh, you know, to to basically pivot into uh, into um, into gaming. So it would have been a much harder decision for us. And you know, by by the way, we might not have executed as well as they did. You know, they they really provided a great experience uh, and and captured the community and added business models on it. But yeah, the it could have been us, but so so are the other five hundred billion dollar idea related to live stream that right. some we know now and some we don't. You know. And an interesting narrative in there that success can be a liability or a blocker. Yeah, the, the, the you know, success and survival, you know, we had other revenue stream as well. We had a production business. We had, um, we had an advertising business with news stations. So, you know, on one hand, we were not the classic, you know, here's 50 million from a, or 100 from a, a, a name brand VC behind us. And don't worry about, you know, monetization. Let's focus later. So we didn't have that, and so a lot of it was surviving, right? Like creating, proving the business, and uh, yeah, it can be it can be limiting if you don't get the 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 big one. Uh, but you you know, it's entrepreneurship. You know, the the 
most important is to keep going and create value. So um, that's what we did. So can you give us an overview of Launcher? I think to an outsider, they're going to look at it and think it's kind of like a SpaceX, right? But that's that's a pretty layman's view of yeah of what you're doing. Will you kind of fill in the blanks, give us a little color around where you sit in the market and what the firm's doing? But actually, the, the, the parallel for me to what's happening in aerospace or in, in launch and satellite is, uh, you know, back to 95, the early days of the internet. So, or even the early days of computers, which I wasn't there, but it's, it's like, you know, you know, if you had started a, a computer company, probably at the time there was only Microsoft and Apple or IBM, people would have said, you, you know, you, you're just trying to be another Microsoft. And you look at today and that, that's just a ridiculous analogy. There's such a big ecosystem and a need for many entrepreneurs to do many things. Um, so that my view is that we are right at the beginning of what we can do in um, space exploration and lower orbit services. It's just the beginning. It's been stagnant since the first satellite, which was Sputnik in 1957. Um, and I want to be, you know, part of it. Obviously, the most successful, the biggest, and that will remain, and that uh, that really opened, made it even possible to create a startup uh, like Launcher. Uh, without a few hundred million to get going is is obviously SpaceX and, and Elon Musk. Um, but that's the macro view. So if you look at what we're doing, we're building a small rocket to deliver a small satellite to orbit. So yeah, it's a, a rocket. SpaceX is delivering satellite to orbit. Now they're doing Starlink and we are. It's smaller. Why is it smaller? Well, because it's useful now. Before, if you had a small rocket, there was no small satellite, so it wasn't useful. And now it is. So the barrier of entry is lowered. Um, to be honest, everyone that's trying to build a small rocket is really trying to build the biggest rocket they could build. Um, and the, the bigger is, you know, to some extent more useful, uh, but you have to be able to start somewhere. And so for the, for the context, you know, there's many, you know, some people that might watch, the, there are many, you know, startup like Launcher trying to build rocket to go to orbit, but you have to remove the whole noise from the market. So out of the 200 countries around the world, only 11 have reached orbit. Only 11 have delivered something with their own rocket, their own technology to orbit. I can tell you that every single one of them want to have this capability so that they could put defense, defense um, satellite, Earth observation and communication satellite and so on without having to do um, international deals with uh, allies that have that technology. Um, so that's the first, you know, if you think about that, wow, that, that's a lot of demand for this technology. These are all these other countries, obviously, um, we only want to work with the ones that are allies and, and of, of the government with government permission because this is restricted. Um, and then if you look at the uh, number of satellites, so between 1957 to, um, to today, there's only been 5,000 satellites ever sent to orbit. And uh, out of these, only maybe one to 2,000 are operational. Right now, between entrepreneurs getting involved in, in you know, satellite launch, and we'll explain why that's not possible, and the government and uh, the internet constellations such as Starlink, it's not possible to, to build high-speed, low-latency internet uh, from lower orbit. There are proposals to send more than 30,000 satellites in the next five years. So wow. it might happen. And these are mainly telecommunication technologies? or they everything. They're, so firstly, you have a, you know, first, I mean, even if the viewers don't know, why do we even need satellites, right? And so people don't realize somebody, uh, in Everyday Astronaut is a great creator for space, should check him out. Um, came up with this idea or echoed this idea that we should have a satellite awareness day and stop all the satellite service for a day so everybody kind of gets an idea. But 
Um, you know, the, the one that every, most people know, but the Air Force created GPS, and we use GPS, you know, everywhere, Uber, Google Maps, Waze, whatever. Um, you know, there's uh, Earth observation. You know, we gather a lot of data, um, you know, from observing the Earth for economic needs and, and trading and so on. There's all the weather. You know, how do we know what the weather is like in the ocean? And how do we have ships coming from China safely to California to deliver goods from Amazon? Um, all of that is because of satellites. Um, we have safety and, and, you know, in hurricanes and so on from satellite, we have, um, you know, high-end communication from the sea that relies on satellite. We have Earth observation. How do we know that, you know, we have problems with, uh, uh, with the atmosphere and with, uh, and with, um, and with uh, oceans rising and so on? We use satellite technology. So there's a, an incredible amount of value there. In the traditional way you would build and launch a satellite service uh, before, let's say, five years ago, uh, the equation was usually about a hundred million to a billion dollar to design and build a satellite, single one, mm -hmm. and then about a hundred million dollar to launch it. Um, so you're not sending one satellite if you can't fund at least, let's say, three hundred million dollar before. And you know, if you really want to build a real service with three or four satellites, you need cash flow for your operation and marketing, whatever you're doing, right? Communication, you know, it's multiple billions of dollar of investment, and only governments and publicly traded like a direct TV type company used to play there. So now, because of the mobile phone supply chain, you can make a useful satellite uh, the size of a loaf of bread, right? And um, and you can and you couldn't before. The electronics are smaller. The, you know, you can have great sensors and cameras and so on. And what's interesting is this satellite. The, you know, the bomb is about a hundred thousand dollar, and to launch them is about two or three hundred thousand dollar. So an entrepreneur that's skilled, you know, out of out of college, you know. By raising about a couple of million dollars, you can have a demo demonstration satellite, right? A single one. Um, but the other thing that's interesting with this small satellite architecture is because they're so low cost, you can send hundreds of them. And if you can send hundreds of them, you can put them in lower orbits uh, that last maybe five years and before it burns up. But that makes it more useful because you're closer to the Earth, whether you're doing communication or sensors or, or, um, or cameras. So all of it, the architecture has changed. Who can get involved has changed. And so there's a, the first market is just copying the incumbent. You know, so there's a, an example is a company called Planet. Um, it's one of the success stories there. Um, they have uh, 300 small satellites the size of a loaf of bread imaging the Earth every 24 hours. And they compete with some of the companies that have these incredible, and even the National Reconnaissance Office, that have incredible, large, high-resolution um, imaging satellite, but they have five or one. Uh, so they're competing totally differently where they are, you know, doing more, uh, you know, more refresh basically of the entire Earth. It's a different data set. It's not the same resolution. And every five years or less, their satellite is burning up, but they don't care because they want the next generation of sensors and they want to keep replenishing the constellation. So it, it's a paradigm shift that uh, you have a set of startups that are trying to compete with the incumbents. Um, you have also the government at the same, um, some of the same challenge. We have, um, you know, um, it's not known exactly how many we have. It's classified. But let's say we have five, five you know, $4 billion imaging satellite that we position uh, over different targets on the Earth. When you say we, you mean the U.S.? Yes, yes, sorry. Yeah. Um, yeah, sorry, not launcher. Um, and, uh, you know, the problem, they're, they're incredible technology. The problem is that we have only five of them, and our adversaries now have technology with lasers to fry all the electronics from the ground. Um, and so even the government with this 
you know, incredibly expensive, important asset of the country, um, they have started small satellite initiative, not to replace them, they still need them, but to maybe have, you know, 200 small satellites that do more like what Planet is doing. Um, and uh, it's harder to target them and they're everywhere all the time, so you don't really know. So all of this is creating the demand for these small satellites and, uh, and the demand for small rockets, which are, if you can make them affordable enough, they can get your satellite, your small satellite, or your bunch of 10 small satellites um, to the right orbit, and it's your mission, you know, just the third-level payload, you know, under uh, a mission of a, of a $1 billion satellite. And so SpaceX or whoever else it is doesn't really care about your $100,000 satellite. You will go where they go, when they go. Um, so that that's the need. Um, and currently there's, you know, many companies that are trying, but there's really only one that's been successful at it uh, in the U.S. Um, it's a Rocket Lab, an incredible company. So they the small SpaceX in terms of rocket size, but incredible in skills. And then you have one in China as well. I, I forget the name. What's the advantage of a smaller rocket, just for folks listening? Why does that matter? Why not just load more satellites into bigger rockets? Well, the, one of the big challenges is that every, if you have a constellation, you want all your satellites to go to different orbits and different place. And so, um, so having a small rocket allows you to choose, you know, you can for five to 10 million, you can buy the whole rocket and design the whole mission for your needs. Uh, if you go on Falcon 9, you can get more mass. It's cheaper actually on a per kilogram mass. So think about the small rocket like uh, Uber and and the Falcon 9 is like the bus, right, or the subway. It's cheaper, but it doesn't go when you want to go. It doesn't go where you want to go. And there's, you know, competing approach. Some people are trying to, uh, or some people are building, you know, tugs to then take you from somewhere else, but then you don't have the reliability of Falcon 9, and it's not the price of Falcon 9 because, you you know, a company called Momentus, for example, that uh, is trying to go public with a SPAC, but you, you know, you now have to pay for their margin and their reliability on top of yours and so on. Um but there'll be space, you know, the, the Air Force wants small launchers so that they can replenish their, their constellation, their small satellite constellation, um, you know, in a targeted way. Um, and they want it to be more affordable. Right now there's a premium, and they, but they want it to be more available for more providers. Um, but they also want the large rocket, right? So it's, a, it's just a, a, not a product uh, that is needed. On the international level, I think for launcher, there's a... Uh, really, you know, in the same way the, the United States, um, we sell um, F-35s to many allied nations around the world. We love selling unique technology uh, with, uh, you know, with State Department approval. Uh, that's something we, we do as a country. Um, in the same way, you know, there are many countries around the world that would like a native capability to launch small satellite. They'd like maybe a bigger rocket, but that's a lot more expensive. So a useful small rocket is where they want to start. Um, and I think there's a licensing opportunities as well. You know, again, if you look back, only 11 countries and two private companies, both are doing really, really, really well. So that's a good place to invest in and in, in arrive, especially if you have a unique product. Um, and back to the unique product you were asking, so our differentiator uh, out of all the other companies that are trying is we're not trying to optimize for time to market. Um, they're all trying to rush with pretty aggressive timeline and our developing team that goes, uh, you know, that, or building everything at the same time. Our view is to focus on performance um, and have the highest performance engine at the lowest cost. And the reason that's important is that the biggest passenger on an orbital rocket is the propellant. It's more than 90% of the mass. Um, and so if the equivalent of the rocket miles per gallon, uh, you know, how much propellant you consume for a given amount of thrust, 
if you can be a few percentage better than your competitor, you're going to be able to not just increase your payload a little bit, you're going to be able to double it or triple it. And the, the piece I didn't mention is the payload is only 1% to 3% on the best rocket of, of the mass. So if the rocket's more efficient, you need less fuel and you can put more satellites in. Correct. And on the second stage, it's one-to-one. One. You know, you save one, uh, one pound of propellant, you get one pound of satellite extra. Got it. And on the first stage, you know, there's two stages, like a third, but it's... So that can move the economics of delivery in the industry. That's, that's the bet. Uh, and we're not trying to go, you know, exotic propellants and things that have never been done. Uh, we're doing it with 3D printing. Uh, we're doing it at a very low cost of other traditional engine, but... The best engine in the world is still a Russian engine designed without computer in the 70s. Um, and in the same way that, you know, diesel car engine, it's known, um, and, uh, and, but it's still very hard and to make a reliable, uh, high-efficiency one. So, <clears throat> so we're applying, you know, we're doing a lot of, uh, with our chief designer that's originally from Ukraine, now with Green Card in New York, we're applying a lot of the high-performance known um, designs, but to a small rocket, using 3D printing. That, that's our real unique approach uh, at Launcher. So, Max, you work with the State Department, right? Anytime you do anything with rockets, I'm sure the U.S. government gets involved. How does that happen? Is there a car of men in black showing up and there's some, uh, they accost you, throw you in the back of the van and they start having conversations? <laughs> or is it more like an episode of Office Space? Where, where does, what is the experience of the State Department? Do they reach out to you? How does that go? Well, the first thing is that it's, uh, you know, between the Department of Defense and the State Department and, and all of the uh, providers of technology, of orbital space technology, it's a very small and close community. Everybody knows each other. So, um, you know, the, our first, uh, well, firstly, we won at the, we were selected to pitch at the Air Force Space Pitch Day, uh, the first one in November last year. Um, and there we, you know, we were, it's a closed room pitch um, with um, all of the leaders of Space Missile Command, uh, the Secretary of State, uh, Barrett at the time, uh, sorry, the Secretary of the Air Force, uh, uh, Barbara Barrett at the time. And uh, we were able to pitch Launcher and as part of their desire to uh, innovate, you know, that it's really interesting on their side, they, they used to have, you know, 50 startup building airplanes. And, uh, you know, in the 60s, you know, there'd be like, four new airplanes a year that would fly, um, you know, experimental. And now they're into a cycle where it takes them 20 years to create one airplane, like the F-35, from one vendor, Lockheed Martin. So the Will Roper, the undersecretary of the Air Force, is, is trying to bring, you know, Silicon Valley-style innovation into the Air Force um, to basically make sure we don't get defeated by our adversaries because we need to bring back the pace of innovation, be faster. So they are putting a lot of capital into small startups and entrepreneurs like myself uh, to support them. You know, not all the way. They want, obviously, VCs and investors. Um, but so far, in our case, we won uh, from uh, uh, the Air Force uh, division that's now the Space Force. We won a $1.5 million grant to uh, test the engine we had designed. Uh, and we uh, also have uh, an agreement with NASA to test it at their test stand uh, at NASA's tennis. So slowly, you know, as you start doing innovation, you know, the last three years before that, we were doing a 1,000-pound engine at, a, at our test stand on Long Island, and uh, we created enough data and videos to show that our design are high efficiency and we know what we're doing. You know, then we go, go to the next level. We have the Air Force, not the Space Force, saying, you know what, this, this engine, if it really worked, if it was that efficient, 
uh, that will be an asset to the country, right, for our launch vehicle, but maybe other applications uh, there. So, you know, it, they don't give us the whole capital to develop it, but they, they support us and award us enough based on milestone to continue to check us, you know, can they do this? Um, you know, we're hoping that that continues uh, in as we win more and then eventually we win a launch from them. Um, so that's how we get to know that community. Then we get to know the, the Launchpad community, uh, different Air Force base and, and NASA base to, you know, eventually we obviously need to launch the rocket. And it's all pretty natural. It's like, don't trip. Don't. Uh, we, we were invited to the Pentagon to do a briefing, you know, and these calls just keep happening. It's um, a lot less exciting than I was hoping. <laughs> for the State Department, uh, I hope I never see the uh, the uh, the black van, um, but you have basically our lawyers in uh, Washington, D.C., there's processes, and you, yeah, you, it's not that exciting. You describe, you know, if you want a permission, for example, to work uh, with Ukraine or something like that, some project we have, you describe what you want to do, and you follow the process, and then they grant you an approval and ask you questions. Um, but it's not face to face yet. Uh, so that's uh, right. the, the long, boring answer to your question. Yeah, but most of this, they're giving you grants, they don't want equity in the company. They're trying to get you to build the technology so they can be a customer later. Is that the right? Yeah. So from their point of view, they they don't want to be in a single vendor situation. So they, the Air Force or the Space Force doesn't build rocket themselves. They buy from um, you know the defense industry and the aerospace industry. Um, they don't want to end up in a situation where there's only SpaceX left there. That's not a good day. Um, and they've had that in the past, a monopoly that that's not great. So they're into diversification of companies, and they are into diversification of um, of uh, you know uh, formats, right? Like a big rocket, a small one, and and different. Right. So that that's their goal in in funding it, and uh, and you know, and it's part of that bigger agenda that I was mentioning for Will Roper, which is we want to you know reboot the defense innovation in the country. And we're going to allocate, you know, they're allocating billions of dollars and the USPs are, we are becoming easier and easier to work with. It's been amazing. It's uh, like the, the speed at which we were pitching and then being awarded and then, you know, the simplicity of the contract and the payment, you know, I would have never imagined that working with the government would be uh, this easy. But it's part of this thing of trying to accelerate and make it easier. And then the big pitch is exactly as you said, is, and if you work with us, we don't take any equity. We just want you to succeed. That's great. Now, this may now sound a little bit paranoid, and I don't think it's a question I've ever thought about in the context of a startup. Are you worried at all about spying? Do you, is this something you have to pay attention to internally with trade secrets and technology? Um, and if yes, what do you do to manage that that maybe a normal tech startup is not doing? So the... Um, so the technology that we develop, which is propulsion for orbital launch vehicle, right, peaceful use using satellite, um, can also be used for weapons. Um, it's called dual-use technology, and that's not our goal. It's not what we're trying to do at Launcher. Um, and as a result, it's, it's uh, basically controlled through a treaty uh, called ITAR. And, uh, you know, for example, the F-35 I was mentioning, the Lockheed Martin, mm-hmm. Lockheed Martin can't, the sales person of Lockheed Martin can't go to countries and sell it. They can, tr- they can, you know, kind of initiate it, but for the deal to happen, the State Department need to do what they do, leverage other deals, whatever, and then approve it. Um, and so all the technology that relate to, you know, propulsion and, and launch vehicle is really um, 
into like a safe box um, in terms of the IP within the United States. It's not, we can sell it around the United States so long as it's safely handled as ITAR, um, but we cannot sell it outside. And that means also who can work on it. It has to be green card holder or US citizen, or we have to get a license. Uh, but we cannot export this IP um, uh, without a permission. And that's, you know, that's just the way it is. There's not some sort of special background checking you have to do when people come in. This is the State Department reviewing who you hire. Well, the the ITA is the first level. You know, in the government, you have you know top secret and other type of of ITA is kind of the most benign uh, of them. Mm-hmm. Um, and you know what we have to make sure is that we don't leak this information outside, and only U.S. citizen or green card holder have access to it. That's our, you know, and so we have obviously encryption and storage and there are rules you follow for ITAR. But for example, we had a, one of our team members is a Spanish and uh, we did get him a license, um, you know, and, and so he could work on certain aspect of our engine, not all of it. And so you have to manage that. But it's, it's actually, you know, a lot of people are worried and scared about it. And it's uh, the IT procedures and then permission procedures that are, you know, it takes a bit of time, but it's, you just, we just get it done. Now, back to your question about spying or cybersecurity, um, you know, as you mature, right now we're only in the development stage, right? Like the, 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 it's not a proven design that goes to orbit. It will be. And so as you get closer to that, of course you will have adversaries. Um, you know, that's a, the right term. You know, we're in a game, you know, with many countries. And of course you'll have adversaries attempting to, uh, to steal it. You know, imagine if you could get uh, all the blueprints of, uh, in the software code from Falcon 9 of SpaceX. So that's kind of a, a, you know, in the spy game, that's kind of a good asset, right? So mm-hmm. absolutely, as you as you get closer, as the stakes get higher, it becomes probably, you know, one of the top priority um, at companies like SpaceX that have a finished product. Um, for us, it's on the way, and we do obviously all the best practice you would expect in following ITAR and IT security uh, there. So satellites... I think at this point are relatively commonly understood to be commercially viable space tech, mm-hmm. but there's other parts of the media story around space technology. Can you opine on the following? Space tourism. Is that a viable, practical thing? Is it far-fetched? Is it on the come? Where does that fit in the world of reality as an insider in the industry? Well, the space industry is small, so um, you know, I'm going to be careful at what I say, but my point of view is that I'm very frustrated that there's a lack of understanding of orbit and space. And so space is just going on a joyride to above 50 miles, right? It's an arbitrary line. And people think that when you go to space, when you turn off the engine, you are in space. Well, no, when you go to space and you turn off the engine, you go right back to where you started. And that's right. what's called still gravity. suborbital. That's what Jeff Bezos is trying to do with, uh, uh, with New Shepard. That's what uh, Virgin Galactic is trying to do. Personally, I'm a, you know, a macro fan of space exploration and taking risk with, with people's lives for you know, actual space exploration. I consider these um, joy rides, and I think they don't make sense. The risk of being on a rocket, like I... I want to go to orbit. I want to go to the space station. I want to go to Mars. I want to go to the moon. I don't want to take that ride. I mean, if you died on that, it would be the most ridiculous thing you did. And by the way, because you just went, you didn't even go to orbit space and you were like 
you know, what appears like lack of gravity, but you can get on a plane. You're just falling back on Earth for just a few minutes, and then your family is there waiting for you at the same spot. Now, orbit is the, the process of going to that altitude and then accelerating horizontally at 7.5 kilometers an a, a second. Um, that's about um, you know, 20,000 miles an hour. Basically, once you reach that speed and you are outside the Earth's atmosphere, when you turn off the engine, you stay there indefinitely, depending on the orbit, right? And if you go faster, you, you go beyond the Earth. Um, that, I think, is a very important um, activity for humans to do, uh, building infrastructure in low Earth orbit and, and starting to explore the stars. And I think tourism related to orbit something I'm, I'm very excited about, um, you know, going to the space station or some of the early space tourists that went to orbit. So there's a big differentiation, you know, not a fan, I think, uh, you know, doesn't make sense, the suborbital um, space tourism. And I'm a big fan of, um, of uh, orbital space tourism or, or travel beyond that. Um, I think it's very important, you know, the reason we went to the moon is because and the public wanted us to go to the moon. You know, the, the money comes through Congress and Senate and, and the president. And at that time, not everybody wanted it, but the public wanted it um, for many reasons, including the Cold War and the threat of not being number one uh, with, with the Russian or the Soviet. Um, and so we need to inspire people. We need to get them excited, whether it's creators or artists or movies, like they're talking about Tom Cruise going to the space station or... I look forward to the day Elon is going to go um, to the space station. Um, but we need that because we need to create more awareness. Um, you'd be shocked at how many people don't even know we have a space station. Like, it's like, oh, do we really have people living outside, you know, the Earth? Okay. Why does it really matter? <laughs> right? Why do space, for space exploration, let's take that as the next bucket. Mm -hmm. um, we all know it's a thing. We all know that there's a goal of putting people on Mars. Why is it important? Well, it depends the future you want to be part of, right? So to me, it's very simple. There's a future where we never do it. Um, and I think humans are, you know, we are a virus. We can build technology that reduce our consumption and reduce our damage, but it cannot go to zero and it cannot go in net positive. We use resource to live. It's just what we do. I also think, you know, taking even a step back, that to the idea, you know, I'm, you know, I, I care deeply about the earth and the environment, but the idea that we need to uh, stop um, the population, the increase of population on the earth, the idea that we need to even go backward and that it's a bad thing that more humans are living, it, it's to me insane. I think that's our job to have, you know, I call this concept infinite humanity. We need, We need to dream of a, so many humans on so many planets that we're so far away from each other, we don't even know who they are and where they are, right? That's a future I can get excited about. I can't get excited at the idea that we're going to just focus on building technology to not destroy the Earth, which we should do, and we're going to limit the Earth to, you know, I don't know, 10 billion people. Oh, let's go to 5 billion people. Um, to me, that's even genocide. Like, you're not allowing these people to live and... Uh, you know, the, the standard of living, I know a lot of people get depressed about what's happening on Earth and so on, but the data is that the, the, the worldwide human experience is improving every day. And, uh, of course, some people have not very good lives, 
but the average, I think, is worth living. It's what humanity is about, especially if you increase it. So, so for me, it's important because that's the future. Like the alternative is just the most depressing thing ever. Um, whether it happens in this lifestyle, this lifetime, never, or 100 lifestyle lifetime, I don't know. It's a pretty crazy, ambitious goal. But I know that if we don't develop the technology and we don't contribute to it, we will we will never get there. Um, and if you think about it, you know, 1957 Sputnik sounds like, oh, space is old, you know, these black and white images. But for the, you know, on this 10,000-year timeline where, you know, eventually, I hope, we're not extinct and, you know, childrens of children or whatever are learning at school what's important and they're not on Earth. I mean, that's crazy. That just happened like a second ago. Like the, mm-hmm. the, so I was, you know, before 1957, we had never put anything in orbit. We didn't even know what would happen, if it was possible, whatever. And so I, we have just done this, and it's the technology is accelerating, 3D printing, low small electronics, whatever. And, you know, on a lifetime, I guess it's like, oh, really old, two generations ago, um, on a macro thing, it's like, wow, I have the chance to be part of it. Um, and why am I going to live my life without any interaction um, with it if I believe it's the the future of the earth. So that's, that's why it matters to me. Um, yeah. What about space mining? I've heard about companies that are going to mine minerals from asteroids or other planets and maybe bring it back to the, to the earth. Is that practical? Is that a reality or is that sci-fi at this point? I mean, you know, the, well, on a different kind of macro view, I think it's worth to have, you know, 10% of people on Earth should be working on space exploration. You know, the 90, the 90% other can be building resources to make the Earth better. That's that's how big I think it should be. And I think, you know, talking about taking 10% of all resources, right, the 10% tax or whatever, and 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 putting it to space exploration. If we did that, like if we knew there was an asteroid coming and destroying us, we probably would put 60% or more. But, um, but if we did that, um, you know, mining and everything you talk about is not, it's not like sci-fi in the way that it relies on technology we don't have today. Um, it just relies on time. You know, it takes 10, 20 years and, you know, appropriate amount of money uh, in which money is really just people, right? A lot of people that are focused on that versus, right. you know, I don't know, building Amazon warehouse. Um, so, yeah, within that, it's not far-fetched. And when it happens, it will change everything. Um, you know, to a lot of the natural resource prices we have and the options we have. Um, is it about to happen? Would I invest in a startup doing it? Probably not. Um, um, but uh, but it, will, it will happen. The opportunity today, in my view, is, is related to lower forbit, uh, whether, you know, some of the tip of what you see is uh, Starlink is an incredible uh, opportunity, and that's just the, the beginning. Um, I think we should start with that, and then the government should take us um, beyond that, to the moon and to Mars, um, maybe not with their own rocket, maybe with other people's rocket, um, but but it will take a while before that's a um, money-making endeavor. Uh, but lower forbid, it's now. I think next ten years, big time. So, last uh, question in this bucket, this category of space tech, space force. Mm-hmm. It, it's a popular word now. The average American, the average person around the world, maybe, maybe knows of this. Is it practical? Why do we need it? How does it fit into the scheme of what's capable? What risks are they addressing? Uh, I think we just get headlines and we don't get enough color mm-hmm. without being in the space industry to understand why it matters. 
I mean, firstly, the Space Force has existed the last uh, 30 years. It's called, uh, in part, Space and Missile Command within the Air Force. And so the their mission has been to, you know, first use space to uh, use the latest technology instead of sending you to plane, you know, having a satellite looking at uh, what uh, North Korea is doing in, in, in China and, and whatnot. So, you know, if you believe in, in, and also have communication infrastructure for our military and so on. So if you believe, which obviously I do believe, um, that we, you know, we need an adequate and the world-leading, um, you know, defense and, and military. Uh, that part of the job is the air domain, putting infrastructure up there to support everything else and having the best one. Um, out of that came GPS, um, and that was, you know, num- you know, created and it's actually donated to the world by the Air Force. It's uh, it's an incredible thing that that people don't know. And then things have accelerated. Um, there's been many treaties that says we shouldn't put bombs, um, nuclear bomb, um, and I really hope we never do, and I hope we haven't yet, we, the world in this case, uh, in orbit. Um, and uh, and we should not weaponize uh, space, but um, for whatever reason, these developments have evolved, and now there are, there are adversaries, so meaning other countries, have technology that with a laser they can disable any satellite. So now you have all these assets that we need, right? We can't do anything, you know, our aircraft carriers or our drones, whatever you think, you know, if you believe in the military we need, um, they are subject to only a few of these, you know, bus-sized satellite that countries, if they, if we started a war, can aim a laser at and stop. So that's a, what, mm. they, what we would call a contested domain, like, like the oceans, that you need, you need to defend. And so the... And they've been, we've been doing that for a long time, and the Space Force is all about, it's not this hidden thing that no one knows about as part of the Air Force. It is, you know, uh, its own top-level Department of Defense organization. Um, I, I think it uh, makes a lot of sense, and I think it's, it's great that, uh, that, you know, if you believe we should have an Air Force, you know, the, I don't see any reason that why you should believe we should have a, a Space Force given the recent developments. I know it can drive founders crazy to wait while websites are in development. And I'm thinking of all the people who have built mobile apps and webs, you know, the mm-hmm. stuff that consumers are used to engaging with. I'd imagine the development cycles are much longer for building spaceships, space, mm-hmm. you know, engines and other types of technology. How do you stay sane? I mean, my first experience with hardware, right, is consumer electronics is the camera called Mevo. And the uh, a lot of people are afraid of hardware, right? It's uh, hardware is hard, and you have to manufacture it. It's not just software, um, but the process that exists is slower, um, but they're really good and reliable, and I really enjoy them, right? It's it's it takes a year to make a new camera, and you go through, you know, design and then prototyping, and then you know you get your tooling made, and then your manufacturer makes a few uh, a few runs, and then at the end of it, right now we we're going for Mevo. Um, next year, we hope to do more than 100,000 cameras. And it's like literally you cut some POs and then you, you source inspect 5,000 of them in, in, uh, at the factory through a third party. Then it shows up in a warehouse you've never seen in California and then it goes to Amazon and customers. So, you, you, you know, it is, it's slower, but it, the level of professionalism and the process, you know, make it even like, I think, more enjoyable to develop. Uh, there's more at stake. You pay more attention. You don't change it last minute. But the product can be equally as good and, and innovative. So longer timeline was already my experience um, building the Mevo camera and others. Um, for Launcher, we're on a 10-year timeline. And uh, 
a four-year timeline to build uh, the engine. You know, for example, we did a test uh, in October at NASA for our full-size 22,000-pound thrust 10-ton combustion chamber, and we learned a few things, and now we're printing another one in December. We're changing the design now. We're printing in December. It'll arrive in January, February. We'll do all the machining and so on. In March, we will test again. So, you know, October to March, that's kind of the timeline for serial number two. Those are um, long cycles. Yeah, but during that, you know, you're playing a chess game, and so you have this thread, right? And we have this thread, which is we need our combustion chamber and our injector to work perfectly by the end of 2021, and maybe it's that iteration or the one after. And every four months, you have an iteration. But at the same time, we're developing our pump, and we're developing our avionics. And so you can't be impatient, and you have to start a lot of threads in parallel, and and you have to really make sure you don't get into tech that end. That's where... In hardware, if you make the wrong choice, right, you build your avionics with the wrong processor, mm-hmm. or you choose the right, the wrong material for your 3D printed engine, or the wrong 3D printer, or or the wrong cycle, you can make this dead end and spin for three years and then nothing at the end. Um, right. So th- that's the biggest um, stake, and I think that's why I'm kind of it's one of my skills. Um, I think at least that I've developed, you know, to avoid that, measuring the risk architecturally, you know, of the technical choice. Uh, but that that's the only, the slowness makes it problematic if you made the wrong choice. Um, like it mm. really is fatal. Um, but other than that, you know, it's a barrier of entry, right? Like once you get going, I mean, you can see SpaceX, they've been at it since 2002, 18 years, and it's like a steamroller train, right, of technology that keeps adding on top of each other um, and groups of people that get like attracted like atoms um, to each other. So... Um, you know, once you get going, it's it's um, it's fast. You know, I mean, I don't I don't think you need it faster personally. Historically, a lot of the heaviest, most sophisticated, particularly hardware technologies have been built out of the West Coast. Mm-hmm. I run a New York-based firm, as you know, and I'm out here in New York with you. How has NYC served as a location for Launcher? Well, the, actually, the, the origin of the uh, aerospace or uh, aero industry was Long Island. The, the lunar lander that went on the moon was actually developed in Bethpage on, uh, on Long Island. Um, so it started here, and then it kind of spread to the West Coast in the last, uh, you know, f- four or five decades um, there. Um, you know, for building a hardware or well, building any startup, you need a place where people with families can go and live and be excited, and graduates can come and live and be excited. Um, and uh, I think New York City is as good as uh, all the other metropolis, uh, LA being another aerospace one. Uh, but what we have, um, you know, here, which is also amazing, we've had a lot of political support and, uh, you know, we're unique, so we're able to, to attract, um, you know, talent without any problem. Um, you know, in terms of infrastructure, you anyway go, you know, SpaceX doesn't test in LA, they test in Texas. You know, we test now, we used to test on Long Island, the small stuff, the big stuff we tested at NASA Stennis. So from that point of view, it doesn't matter where your design and, and your factory is. So I think New York is going to end up being a, a great asset for us. And the, the the other thing that's also very different is since I started Launcher is, um, you know, you know, if you build an internet company, an AI company, whatever, you're going to compete with Facebook, Google, on talent, salaries, um, it's going to be really tough as a startup uh, mm-hmm. beyond the founder to get, to get the top talent. Um, with propulsion and rocket, and, and there are, we get you know, job applications you know, multiple times a day, unsolicited. I don't even have a jobs page on the website. We should. Um, and 
people will will move from anywhere um, to if they believe you're building it and you're going to fly, it doesn't really matter where where you are uh, for the top talent. Um, so in that way, you know, aerospace or you know, or propulsion technology or, or rocket has been uh, it's been really really refreshing the the quality of the people and the demand. And if you take it back, you know, there are more space startup than there's ever been, and there are more. 3D printed rocket engine developed than there's ever been. But, you know, there's still like only maybe, you know, five to eight um, US, you know, liquid rocket engine being developed right now actively, right? right? How many startups do you have to compete with? So it's still, it's a lot more than before, which was between zero and one um, at any time, you know, a new engine being made, but it's still like nothing, eight, like th- that's it. Um, so if you want to work on these technology as a graduate or you're an experienced person, um, you know, it's it's uh, it's the team and the progress we've made and the approach, and New York is actually a great plus to to the equation of of uh, attracting this talent. What does the space industry need at this point? The people listening to this, how can they help? Mm-hmm. What should new entrepreneurs build? The biggest thing is public support and public understanding and awareness. Um, mm. That's the biggest differentiator, and you have actually two two big groundswell going on. One worries me and one encourages me. So the first one is if you watch a SpaceX or any launch, even ULA, which is the government with Lockheed Martin and Boeing, uh, or now Rocket Lab, uh, any launch to orbit of any satellite or humans, you're seeing more and more and more viewers on YouTube and other places. So the content, the interest is growing every day. It's a groundswell of of, uh, young people mostly, I believe, and creators that are helping um, you know, making it popular. Um, and that's really happening. So that that's good. We need that, right? We need all these people, whether they're voters now or later, to, in my opinion, right, to tell the, the congressmen that they should be, you know, we should be allocating more resource to space exploration. On the other end, you also have the more concerning piece, at least, again, in my opinion, which is, you know, we should exclusively fix the Earth. There's too much, obviously, suffering and poverty and any space exploration um, is, uh, you know, a fantasy and it shouldn't happen and we should not even worry about this. And it goes even further to end the billionaires doing it, meaning Elon Musk, I guess, and uh, Jeff Bezos, you know, are just uh, trying to be escapist and, and uh, wasting, their, wasting our money on, on this stuff just for their fantasies. And that is dangerous, and that's also growing, unfortunately, at these two uh, really opposing views. I, I see them. Um, and, you know you know which one I hope will win, and I, I hope what will win is obviously a, a better understanding of what is the orbit and space, not just this abstract thing, and a better awareness that we need to do, you know, save the Earth and use uh, space to make the Earth better um, and invest strategically in it. So that... That's what I hope, and that comes from it needs to be more popular and it needs to be more understood, and uh, you know then the government can allocate more funding to it. Whether you know we build this rocket to go to the moon in 2024, we do it later with the Elon Musk rocket or whatever. I, I personally don't don't really care, um, but what I care is that the NASA's budget grows and the the general investment in the in the industry grows. I get I care that more engineer coming out of, of school are working on this problem uh, than today, basically. Where do you see the space industry in 10 years? I mean, it sounds like 
you're hoping it's going to garner more attention, more support. What does it look like 2030? I mean, it's not, um, I'm not hoping. I mean, you can see there, there was zero uh, VC and uh, PE investment, well, maybe some PE, but zero VC, C to Series C uh, into satellite or launch companies um, five years ago or maybe seven years ago. And uh, now it's there, right? Um, and so I'm, you know, I'm hoping that that really grows. And then on the other side, you have um, commercial success that are starting, you know, SpaceX, Rocket Lab. I mean, you can see the, everybody wants SpaceX to IPO and they're creating a vacuum, but there's definitely a, a groundswell of, of interest to, to invest more uh, on that side. Today, it's not a hope. Um, and then the government, you know, is investing more, point. That's, that's a fact. That's just going to keep increasing and increasing and increasing for defense need and for backup need and, and also to be the leader in aerospace in, in the world. So... Um, all of that, yeah, I see a world where we go from 5,000 satellites, 2,000 are useful, to a world where we have, you know, maybe 20 to 30,000. We have new services that you and I can't even think about today. In the same way, when the day the iPhone came, you, you couldn't predict uh, Uber. And, and if I, I wish we could have all done, predicted all the top apps, but we mm -hmm. couldn't. Me too. Um, so we we definitely will have, uh, or maybe you did. Uh, I don't know if you invested, but... I got a um, few the but you know no one could predict with full certainty so we're going to see new applications uh, as well as a as a growing market um and we're getting the entrepreneurs involved i mean w what i'm talking to you about before you know even elon musk which opened it up with a hundred million dollar when he started spacex there was a hundred million dollar in the bank account no one would want to join and everybody was laughing at it and today all of the vendors, all of the suppliers of parts are interested in us because we could be the next one. We might not be, but they can't afford to ignore them. Right. Um, they might not be in, the, in their point of view. And, you know, the, uh, SpaceX and Elon Musk get to sue the Air Force to get them to speak to them. We are invited to pitch to the leadership and, and we get $1.5 million. Wow, what so a change. The, it's a, and, you know, we have to thank him. You know, for me, is the Steve Jobs or the Bill Gates of... Uh, of, of the space industry, I, you know, I'm sure he wants a monopoly and he doesn't want anyone else to play. But I think the, the reality is I think there will be a, a bunch of companies of different size, um, you know, and a full ecosystem thriving in the next 30 years. And many, many, many entrepreneurs, um, you know, in the space to a point that it's not weird. Like, oh, you just want to build another SpaceX. It'd be like a normal thing. Yeah, of course, we should be having innovation in, in lower orbit and beyond. Max, your story as an entrepreneur through all of the legs of, of the journey that you've shared are fascinating. You've had experiences that I think very few people maybe in the entrepreneurial ecosystem have had in general. What is the most important thing you've learned? If you could give everybody listening to this a bit of advice that would help them, what would it be? One of them is, I have two, one of them is... Um... If you don't make a decision, somebody will make it for you. That's just the way I live in entrepreneurship um, to have triggers, right? Because your, your company and your team is really an organism or an algorithm. And my job is to make sure that, uh, you know, we, we make these decisions before they're made for us, right? Whether it's running out of money and somebody close your company if you don't do it yourself or, or whatever else. Um, on the more inspiring part, you know, the, what, what I've really learned through, you know, seeing how the team interacts with me and what inspired them to work together and, you know, 
the ability to to do new things and through the career and all the things I've tried. I think my job as an entrepreneur in the early stage, which I'm now back in, um, is really the chief experimenter. And, and, you know, and it's a DNA to just want to experiment all the time. And, you know, as the more people are like throwing at me objections and, and you know, reasons and process, you know, the more you just, I, I get energized and, and realize that, you know, that's my job, right? That's not, this would not happen unless I was able to get rid of all the objections and give it a try and also create a framework that, we're giving it a try. You know, we, we try 10 things and two stick uh, in that. That's the job. So I think the, the reality that the whole thing is an experiment and the pace of experiments and the curation of, of, of focusing on the ones that work. Um, and basically, the only way to do it is to be okay with uh, no process. Um, and so more and more as a maturing as an entrepreneur, I'm trying to have no process. Um, and then if you want no process, what happens is you need really amazing people that really want to work with each other. Um, and so that's kind of the circle I'm at. And with Mevo, it's interesting. Uh, uh, this team I'd worked with for on average 10 years, and then they went to Vimeo, and then we did a deal with Vimeo, and they kind of went back to work with me, and we all really enjoy working with each other. And uh, it's been a year and a half, and we've grown you know, 3x revenue, and it's, it's been just incredible to launch a new product. Um, I spend very little time, and we never have any meeting, we don't have all ends, we don't have one-on-ones. Um, like, there's no process, but hey, we make 100,000 cameras, right? And, and we sell them. And it's been, um, and the analysis of that, and there's no drama, is just, you can only do that if you have the most uh, incredible team and then the, uh, you know, a vision and a place they want to go. So that's, you know, I think one of the best lesson for me has been real, taking me time to realize that. So Let me ask a, a clarifying question because agile is a very popular method. When you say no process, do you mean there's no method where you're not meeting on a certain frequency? There's no structure. It's simply things need to happen and you rely on them happening. How does this function? You know, you, you, when you want to start with people that want to compartmentalize, oh, this person shouldn't have access to this tool on Amazon and this person, you know, like hard limits instead of just working together. We, we, I just get rid of all of that. Uh, and so it's an experiment at, at Mevo. I think at some scale um, we'll change it. Um, but it's the, the connection, you know, what I'm trying to articulate is the connection between an inspired team that's very, very talented engineers that want to work together. So they're matrix. They're not, you know, there's no like drama in politics. And, and if you can get that, then you can operate without any, um, you know, like all ends and big meetings and weekly meetings and tag up. But we do it all just organically and it works incredibly. And, you know, they still have a call every week with our manufacturer in China and we have source inspection, we have accounting and we have, but it's the idea of like, just like minimum, minimum viable process is, I guess, the, uh, and so anyone, somebody is trying to put a process at Mevo, at least I'm not interested and so far, it's working incredibly. Um, but the point here, it sounds a bit radical, but right now it's working. But it's, you know, you can't do that without the team that can do it and want to do it. And so, you know, picking and working and creating that team is, is what allows it. Uh, but if you think about it, when you put a process, it's just to control a lack of trust in teams, in between people, or, you know, when you put hard lines of responsibility you're just as a CEO trying to manage something that's already broken. Um, 
that's kind of uh, my, my more recent, you know, entrepreneurial experimental learning. <laughs> Maybe ask me in a few years whether it made sense. Yeah, I was going to say, <laughs> we need to do a check back when, uh, when the team is larger. Yeah, yeah, no, the, I mean, like anything, right? Like in a, in a startup, um, everything changes as you keep going. How big is that team currently? Mevo is 40 people, uh, and it's working great that way right now. So, Max, thank you for taking the time to join us. Great. No, thanks. Uh, you've asked, you should, uh, that should be your profession, you know, get rid of that VC <laughs> thing. <laughs> you've asked really, really uh, like a deep question. You got me talking. This so, is uh, fascinating. I hope no one was bored. bored no, I wasn't. I'm grateful for you to share. I feel like I learned a lot. Uh, thank you for taking the time. Thank you. Huge thanks to Max for explaining how the space industry operates. If you liked what you heard, please hook us up with a five-star review wherever you consume your podcast and feel free to share with a friend. You can find me on Twitter at MPD. If you're listening to this and would like to watch the video versions, you can subscribe on YouTube and Facebook. Just search for Innovation with MPD.